0: will america leave any troops in afghanistan after 2014 who are the new faces obama wants in his foreign affairs and security team the mod overspends by six billion pounds but it's not all bad news
1: what we're starting to see with the mod is that they're taking a much more structured approach to planning their forward equipment
0: program and why flags matter in Northern Ireland. The U.S. has signalled it might not leave any troops in Afghanistan after 2014, in spite of the Pentagon claiming thousands may be needed to contain Al-Qaeda. The issues will be central to tomorrow's talks when Afghan President Hamid Karzai meets President Obama and U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta in Washington. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Marta McCauley from University College London and BFBS Defense Analyst Christopher Lee, while on the phone from Southern Utah University we have political analyst... Professor Michael Stathis, hello to all of you. Uh, Michael Stathis, first of all, what's Obama likely to say to President Karzai tomorrow?
2: Well, it's going to be an interesting meeting. Um, comments made by Karzai over, uh, well, uh, throughout December were uh, hardly what we would call endearing. Uh, But this is an important visit. Uh, Some have described it as perhaps the final turning point uh, in the, uh, the, well, in the long war that's uh, the longest in American history. And, um, of course, there are going to be some very, 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 very vital uh, talking points here. Um, Most important of all, I think it will be the discussion about American troop, uh, troop levels, both now and after 2014.
0: And do you take seriously uh, this news that came out yesterday that they might withdraw all of their troops when they withdraw their combat troops next year?
2: Well, I, I think the timing of uh, of that statement was very interesting. Uh, and I think it was intentional. And uh, it was meant to uh, set things up for discussions this weekend. Uh, but uh, no one really knows. Uh, the troop levels now are 66,000 uh, troops or so. Uh, I have heard four numbers being bandied about uh, as low as 3,000, 6,000, 9,000 or 20,000. And, of course, yesterday there was that statement, maybe none.
0: Dr. Martin McCauley, do you think President Karzai will be happy when he returns to Afghanistan after this meeting?
3: What Karzai knows that after the Americans and the others leave, the Taliban will take over the south and the east and probably Kabul as well. Uh, and he's got to do, do, do a deal with the uh, Taliban. And if you look at some of the other, uh, Hezbollah or Tahrir, they're part of the government around uh, uh, Karzai. So therefore, we're in different worlds. Karzai accepts that the Taliban will basically take over. And the Americans are saying, uh, oh, we don't You say that's a fait accompli, is That's it? a fait accompli. On uh, what, what,
0: what basis do you say
3: that? Uh, the, uh, the Pakistani chief of staff, General Kayami, apparently has negotiated with the uh, Karzai government and Taliban and the other fundamentalist groups about what will happen after 2014. And they've already mapped out the future of Afghanistan, which will be handed over. The problem is the North, uh, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks and the Turkmen will not accept that. So, therefore, if you like, there there already will be a petition of Afghanistan. And, basically, Obama uh, has no option. The best thing to do is to leave.
0: So, uh, Christopher, taking all of what Martin has said into account, um, what can be achieved with this meeting between Obama and Karzai?
4: In context, Karzai is on his way out. Karzai will not be with us this time next year. I mean, he just cannot constitutionally be there. Therefore, he is a lame duck. Um, Obama is uh, with these stories of going around that, well, we may pull everybody out. He's saying to Karzai publicly, listen to don't mess with me. I can actually pull everybody out and then the whole thing goes for a ball of chalk. So that's partly, uh, if you understand how it came about, this was in a conference call, internal briefing, a planted question, is it possible that we get out altogether? Yes, that's might be possible. It wasn't a statement uh, on that. The most important thing for the Americans is that if they did pull out, they've got to wonder about for force protection, how you pull out. You just don't get on a bus and go. And so that's important. The other side of it, Uh, What we're hearing this, and Martin's backing this up, and I'm sure Mike's heard it as well, and that is this. Afghanistan is heading for a civil war with the warlords in the north saying we are not going to get back to what happened after the Russians pulled out.
0: Let's um, let's stay stateside for a moment and talk about the new possible faces at the top of Obama's new administration. John Kerry has been nominated as Secretary of State, Chuck Hagel at Defence, and John Brennan at the top of the CIA. And Michael Stathis, um, what can you tell us about these men?
2: Well, um... It's probably going to be a shakeup on the scale of a, a brand-new administration here in many ways, especially in terms of foreign affairs. Um, uh, certainly, we're going to see a new Secretary of State. It's likely, likely to be Senator John Kerry uh, after the uh, uh, political flap over Suzanne Rice. Uh, Secretary of Defense uh, will be new, Chuck Hagel, but not without some issues. There will be a new director of central intelligence, the CIA, and it looks like uh, uh, a company man, uh, no pun intended, but uh, John John Brennan. Uh, he's been around 25 years. Uh, he's a close associate uh last four years working uh, with Obama. And on top of that, uh, last night uh, there was some discussion. We may see a new... Uh, um, uh, Uh, national security uh, uh, director and uh, that we were not talking about uh, a little while ago but uh, an awful lot of things going on
0: and will it get confirmation
2: Um, in the end I think all of these people are going to get confirmation. Uh, And uh, there's uh, Chuck Hagel. There's going to be some uh, political infighting uh, from the uh, from the Republicans, even though uh, Hagel's a former uh, (laughs) Republican senator from Nebraska. But uh, some of his feelings uh, uh, about foreign policy don't mesh up with uh, uh, some of the very, very right wing. Um, uh people and certainly not the neocons uh, so there will be some questions there but i think eventually uh, he will get through and this will create a team that i think that uh, is more professional and uh, uh is designed i think to work a little bit closer with the president
0: Christopher, a more professional team, closer with the President, but what does it mean about US foreign and military policy?
4: Well, when you think about it, John Kerry, for example, who will go to the State Department if this confirmation goes through, he's got a good background in that area, he can carry the Hill on any very, very, very very big questions. The interesting one is really Chuck Hagel, who has upset a lot of Republicans uh, because he has not supported, for example, uh, sanctions against Iran, and therefore he's accused of not being on the side of the Israelis. Uh, John Uh, uh, Brennan, he goes to, if he goes to the CIA, this will be fascinating because Obama wanted him for the CIA when he first got elected, you know, four years ago. Uh, But there were reasons why he
0: couldn't take him. A lot of
4: reasons why he couldn't take him. So, sort of, Brennan said, listen, you know, I'll withdraw, you know, withdraw me, please. But he's in there this time. He is Mr mr predator he is mr drone he is the guy that's invented drone policy now that he's got the technology to do it when you hear about stories about uh, al-qaeda guys getting zapped in in yemen etc it is because john brennan has given a list of people to the president and said mr president will you sign here the president trusts him and i think more and more the senate's going to trust him if there is a doubt i suspect i suspect Um, Chuck Hagel will have a hard ride but everybody just wants people to say listen, I promise to behave myself Uh,
0: Professor Stathis, just very briefly does that mean we're going to see a lot more development within the drone campaign then?
2: I don't know if we're going to see more drones but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a fixture of the anti-terrorism campaign, uh, and of course it, uh, there have been complaints about it in terms of civilian uh, collateral damage, as, as the Defense Department calls it, um, and uh, certain questions about the legal niceties of it and due process of law, but, uh, well, uh, since 9-11, uh, anti-terrorism tends to make an awful lot of things legal uh, without much discussion.
0: Okay, Professor Michael Stathis from Southern Utah University, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Meanwhile, drones have taken centre stage in an escalating arms race between China and Japan as they struggle to assert their dominance over disputed islands in the East China Sea. Uh, China is rapidly expanding its nascent drone programme while Japan has begun preparations to purchase an advanced model from the US. Both sides claim the drones will be used for surveillance, but experts warn the possibility of future drone skirmishes in the region's airspaces very high. Martin Macaulay, do you think that could happen?
3: Uh, It may do, but if you look back uh, to the period before 1895, when the Japanese began to beat the uh, uh, Chinese, they took over Korea in 1905, then they took over Taiwan, uh, and uh, the argument over all those islands and so on, which are now red hot... uh, the Chinese have a very good claim to them because during the war, I think it was 1942, Roosevelt and Churchill said to Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese, you will get back these islands, you will get back all these, uh, all this property that you took, that the Japanese took, and so on and so forth. And that didn't happen after the war. So therefore you have this ongoing conflict and the Chinese look back 50, 100 years uh, and they say that's our property and Japan says no, 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 we don't want that. Uh, and Japan now, the new Prime
4: Minister, may become more belligerent.
0: Christopher?
4: Let me tell you something. Drones is the new black, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to have it. Everybody's got to wear them. The Chinese have increased their budget, their defence budget, by uh, 600% in the past 10 years. They are now building 11 drone air bases, control bases, uh, themselves. They're modelling some of their stuff on one of the best drones, on one of the newest drones. In fact, it's a thing called Global Hawk which the Americans are operating, you can fly that thing for 60,000 feet. You don't use it necessarily for hitting people. You use it for surveillance. So, for example, when we had the, you know, the nuclear um, collapse, the nuclear the power consumer, stations that yeah. went yeah, in, in Japan, that drone was used to monitor it. And we go back to, uh, to, to uh, Brenner, for example, the, the man that's going to take over the CIA, Mr. Drone in America. He thinks that one of the achievements of his drone policy has been to monitor national disasters in America. And so everything is going to be done, he thinks, or everything can be done by drone, which before was being done by manned aircraft and even uh, close earth surveillance by satellites.
0: Martin McCauley... um Japan's going to be increasing its defence budget, isn't it, in 2013, first time in 11 years. What are they likely to be spending it on?
3: Uh, on drones and on shipping and so on, because they're very concerned about the expansion of the Chinese Navy, the Chinese are building aircraft carriers, uh, they're going to cyber warfare and so on and uh, they're extending their reach further into Pacific, and these islands, which are in contention, which both sides claim uh, there will be more uh, trouble over them, it will go down to the South China Sea and so on. So uh, Japan is now forced, if you like, uh, to confront the, the might, the increasing might of the Chinese navy and uh, Chinese ambitions.
0: Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit Rep with, with Kate K- K- S- Still to come, a group of MPs say the military isn't taking the cyber threat seriously enough and fears that Syria is stockpiling chemical weapons. Six billion pounds over budget and years behind schedule. That's the verdict of a National Audit Office report on 16 major defence equipment projects. The report also says some equipment programmes have come too late for their intended purpose. Tim Cooper has more details.
5: The National Audit Office report monitors the progress of the 16 big ticket items on the current MOD defence procurement roster. That's everything from the Astute Class Submarines and Queen Elizabeth Class Carriers to the A400M Transport Aircraft and Warrior Capability Sustainment Programme. The headline figures show that costs for the 16 programmes have risen by £468 million in the last year, while delivery dates have slipped by 39 months. Over the life of these procurement processes, that means costs have spiralled by £6.6 billion and have been delayed by 39 years. The figures paint a bleak picture, but the report's author Tim Banfield says the is showing signs of improvement.
1: There are some early signs that the AMRD is starting to make some better decisions about buying equipment. But as the report shows, they've got a long way to go still to get
5: consistently good and to deliver value for money. Philip Hammond is the Defence Secretary and believes the figures don't tell the entire story.
1: If you read the report, rather than just look at the press release headlines, um, the NAO says some quite positive things about the way we're getting on top of the challenges of managing these huge and complex uh, projects and the headline figure even for this year of cost increase 468 million pounds that is of course 468 million pounds more than i'd like it to be uh, but that compares with 3.2 billion pounds of increase in the last year of the previous labour government.
5: developing and building state-of-the-art equipment will always mean there are teething problems and obstacles to overcome which will inevitably cost money and time to rectify to counter this, the National Audit Office feels the MOD needs to do consistently better when it comes to setting timescales and budgets, and learn from errors made in past procurement programs. Tim Banfield.
1: What we're starting to see with the MOD is that they're taking a much more structured approach to planning their forward equipment program, where they're making better use. They're sweating the assets, if you like. And it's how the MOD learns from some of those good experiences and applies those consistently that's going to help them get cons- better in future and deliver value for money.
5: The audit does show several instances where project delays have led to equipment failing to be ready for specific jobs. Most notably the Falcon Communications System. At a cost of £32 million, an Afghan-specific variant was ordered, but problems in development mean this version will never be deployed to the country. And then there's air transport and air-to-air refuelling. Delays say the NAO mean there will be capability gaps until 2017, meaning the veteran VC10s and Tristars will have to shoulder some of the burden. Philip Hammond.
1: The VC10s will go out of service in September Of this year. That represents an extension by six months on what was originally planned, and it does reflect the problems that we've had, but we're confident that the uh, air tankers will be operational by May 2014, as originally planned. The issue is about getting us through the rather later ramp-up to that May 2014 date, and the VC-10s and the TriStar fleet uh, will allow us to get through that period.
5: The report's author remains optimistic about the MOD's progress, pointing to the success of the billion-pound enhancement of the Chinook fleet, which has added 30% to its flying hours. The MOD says they're confident they're heading in the right direction.
0: Tim Cooper reporting. Um, Christopher Lee, what do you think of this progress report?
5: Yeah,
4: you cannot change the system. You cannot change the progress or otherwise of the whole uh, 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 um, progress of of, of procurement in even five years. It's going to be long. But things have been badly done. £1.8 billion just to sort of keep the things... Uh, up, up to speed. You missed out on Falcon. Falcon, one of the most important communications developments for the, especially for the army that the MOD has done, <coughs> it, and it can't, it didn't, they didn't get it when they needed it in Afghanistan. Will it, will
0: it, will it be sorely missed? Because
4: uh, it, it won't missed. get there in time, will it, it before no, combat no. was rolled? That's right, it's, that's right, it won't get there in time. I don't think it will stop, for example, guys getting killed by Afghans. Uh, and, and that's important. The other thing is the, is the delay on the on the heavy lift aircraft, the A400M, which, which Tim mentioned. The future tanker, uh, it doesn't spend, uh, they don't talk about in great detail why the Elizabeth uh, class, why the carriers had to have all that extra money spent on them. But the point is, they are getting there, but we're talking a 2020 before this thing is going to balance.
0: Right, well, let's move on, because defence ministers have insisted they take the threat of cyber attack very seriously after a report warned it could be could fatally compromise the military. The Commons Defence Committee says technology now lies at the heart of operations, opening up a new vulnerability. It says the government must make sure contingency plans are in place. Major General Jonathan Shaw was, until recently, the head of cyber security at the MOD. He's spoken to sit reps Rosie Layden.
6: Everybody's reliant on but everyone's reliant on cyber technology, everyone's reliant on IT. Uh, the whole of society's done that. And having accepted the benefits of uh, cyberspace, uh, it's only latterly we've discovered the problems with them, so we're desperately trying to retrofit security onto what remains fundamentally an insecure uh, means of communication. And that obviously carries risks. But I think the is doing an awful lot to try and uh, sort itself out on that one.
0: You say the armed forces aren't unique in being reliant on IT, but should we be worried about a potential cyber attack on the armed forces?
6: If you look at the coalition in, in Afghanistan, look at the number of countries involved and therefore look at the number of IT systems that need to emerge together, this problem becomes not just a national problem or a commercial problem, it becomes an international problem as well. Um, and. So it just becomes incredibly complicated. And when you look at a map of the, sort of the, the wiring diagram of the, uh, the communications networks that, that run through the NATO operation in Afghanistan, there's a staggering number of opportunities for, for people to make mistakes and, and uh, people who wish us ill to, to gain entry. So it's, uh, we're very vulnerable. Of course we are.
5: The committee
0: say they want to see more concrete action, particularly from the supply chain and the industrial base. Um, however secure the MOD is, um, they are reliant on their suppliers, so is there a danger of
5: vulnerability?
6: There's a huge danger. The supply chain problem is, is probably the major vulnerability for us, because if we get, uh, no matter how secure MOD makes itself, if it's linked to insecure systems in our supply chain, uh, or if there are... Uh, problems and weaknesses in the equipment that we buy, then we are inheriting their problems, and that's a, that's a real challenge. Um, and certainly when I left, people were trying to devise all kinds of incentivization schemes uh, to make sure that people pass certain uh, sort of benchmark qualities to, to allow them to trade with government. Uh, and uh, to try and encourage people to adopt best practice in cyberspace. Now, I'm slightly out of date about whether that's, whether that's happened or not, but I think that's certainly the way we need to move, to try and encourage people to, to adopt best practice.
0: At the moment, the Minister for the Cabinet Office is in charge of cybersecurity. Uh, the committee talks uh, about the need for an authoritative and definite leadership in this area. Do you think that that minister has enough power?
6: And no, he doesn't. And the truth is that, as minister of the cabinet office, he has no authority. He has coordinating authority only. I mean, that's the. If you look uh, at the uh, at the job specification for the cabinet office, it is not to direct action. It's not to uh, make things happen. It is to coordinate. So all the power of the cabinet office is is to is to to encourage departments across government to best practice. But if departments uh, decide otherwise, then they will do otherwise. So, you know, if, if this government is serious about actually wanting uh, to see cyber uh, delivered in a proper way across government, then it needs to give the authority to someone in charge who can actually crack the whip and achieve sort of consistent levels of performance across government.
0: Major General Jonathan Shaw ending that interview with Rosie Layden. This is BFBS CIGREP. A convoy of Patriot missiles has headed to the Turkish border with Syria this week to protect the country from any attack. Meanwhile, NATO says Syria has fired a ballistic missile towards cities in the north of the country the third in recent days. And while the population struggles with the added hardships of food shortages and freezing weather, the international community is wrestling with how to deal with feared stockpiles of chemical weapons. Christopher Lee, where are the weapons, and what's the international community's biggest concern about them?
4: If the weapons exist, and why is always curious about this until you actually sort of see the shell casings Um, they're in two battalions they're organised by a a, a Syrian Air Force organisation called uh, Unit 450 last November the, uh, the, the satellites ELINT through emails, telephone calls, etc., monitored by intelligence, and they picked up the fact that they were uh, arming 500-pound CW warheads. Uh, the air force, being the only people that can deal with 500-pound warheads, that was the seriousness of it. The SAS, British SAS, and also special forces from Israel and also from the United States were then sent to Jordan, to Jordan to take part in an exercise that in theory hasn't started, but the idea is twofold. One, if those things start getting uh, armed again, it is because they believe that that, uh, Assad is on the last legs and has decided to use CW against villages, for example, that are held by the so-called rebels. In go special forces, in theory, to secure... The, those two uh, battalions, to 7-0 seven, seven and 5-1, no, I think, battalions, to secure the, the weapons, but also to take out the delivery systems, i.e. the command and control for aircraft. That becomes important. They've also insisted, now the the CIA and the Pentagon, you guys in, in there already thinking this uh, through that it will take a force, a ground force intervention of somewhere between 75 and 80,000 ground troops alone to go in and secure those areas and force protection. That is what's being discussed at British National Security Council meeting in two weeks' time. Do we get involved? It's a big thing to coming up.
0: So, Martin McCauley, um, should the Assad regime fall? <clears throat> should the chemical weapons be used? Should they fall into the wrong hands? What would the international community do at the moment, do you think?
3: It's a terrible predicament because uh, the worst thing that could happen would be the Assad regime would collapse. And some of the rebels, some of the Islamist groups would get hold of some of the chemical weapons and they would use them. And they would say, we're going to take over the country. If you don't move away, we'll use them against you. Therefore, you have the scenario where it's possible you have a chemical warfare uh, uh, fight between uh, outsiders. And remember that the rebels have all said that uh, it's the Syrian people and those inside Syria who will decide the fate of Syria, what's going to happen after the Assad regime goes, and that no outside force has any legitimacy in Syria.
0: Christopher?
4: Uh, the only thing to remember, at the moment, these 500-pound warheads can only be delivered by air, and therefore you're not going to have a, a, a conflict back. That's why, you, in that way, that's why you want to send people into Is security really? air force. There's only one other way of doing it, and you pass some of this, you flog it off to Hezbollah, and Hezbollah has been into Syria trying to see if they can negotiate to get a couple of these weapons, and you know what you do? You take them down to the border, you put them on a crop sprayer, and you hit Israel. Now, you imagine what you're going to do then. You are going to have Israel at one end, Syria at the other, rebels all over the place, especially the al-Qaeda-backed or supported uh, elements of the rebels. You're opening up a terrible, terrible scenario for a war in that area that spills over into other countries. And as
0: things are at the moment, President Bashar al-Assad has made a, a rallying speech of the weekend. He has no intention of going. Martin, do you think he's going to stay for a little longer?
3: He said that he's going to fight to the end. Uh, He has one option, that's to move to the coastal area, which is Alawi. He is Alawi, it's a minority uh, Shia sect. Uh, The regime could actually move to the coast uh, where they previously were uh, and under UN guidance or UN protection say, this is our territory, we'll negotiate that we we, uh, will move out and we will stay there. Then the rest of Syria... Uh, is up for grabs because the rebel groups all say, we want to take control. Uh, Outsiders, Syrian National Committee, Coalition and so on, say they want to interfere and so on. But basically the best scenario for ending the Syrian conflict is for Bashar al-Assad and the Alawite elite to move to the coast and to be given international protection.
4: Which is why the intelligence services, CIA, the British Intelligence Service, Israelis, are monitoring a place called Latakia, because that is where they're going to head.
0: Now, the Union flag flew from Belfast City Hall yesterday to mark the Duchess of Cambridge's birthday. It's the first time it's been flown from the building since December the 3rd when the City Council voted to fly the flag only on designated days. The decision has led to loyalist protests across the city, some of which have turned violent. The riots have cost Belfast businesses up to £15 million pounds in lost revenue. Northern Ireland expert Chris Ryder joins us now from Belfast. Chris, thanks for your time. Decision to lower the flag came about through a Democratic vote Originally, is it the case that some loyalists feel they have no political representation?
7: Well, I think it's deeper than that. Um, Over the last 10 years of the peace process, the politicians at Stormont have not only grown remote from their grassroots, uh, who see them just as riding a very plush gravy train, but they have uh, also failed to confront the really difficult issues in Northern Ireland and basically. Sectarianism is 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 the, is the most evil of the issues that they have failed to deal with. Now we have seen over the last year on both sides increasing public disorder over marches by loyalist groups. Uh, we've seen this uh, issue over the flag. These are symptoms of the the fact that the deep sectarian uh, rooted sectarianism rooted in Northern Ireland has not really been confronted, has not really been uh, dealt with, and uh, in fact is now taking root in in another young generation and and that's going to make the task of uh, solving the, the sectarian and political differences in deeply divided Northern Ireland even more difficult now the politicians have wakened up to that just this morning and on both sides you've got Peter Robinson now setting up what he calls his unionist forum to tackle these issues, he's trying to include all the various disparate elements of unionism and loyalism within that and on the nationalist side you've seen Sinn Féin and the the, uh, SDLP this morning holding a joint meeting Um, there is a strategy in place called community sharing and integration but the document that that was being drawn up by by Robinson and McGuinness and the executive has not been published and and, uh, it has been postponed time after time over the last six or seven years. This morning Robinson said because of the tension it's still not appropriate to publish it and there's a feeling that the politicians are totally disconnected from the the, the ordinary people on both sides. One Indeed. side thinks that the others getting more out of the peace process than they should, Indeed. and so you have a recipe for disaster.
0: And Chris, I mean, these protests obviously are the the very real manifestation of these deep divides at the moment. Is there anything that can be done to stop them? Because they are having a a direct impact on Northern Ireland's economy. They're having a very serious
7: impact on Northern Ireland uh, uh, socially, economically and politically. They're having a huge impact. I I, I hope that they they now begin to fade out. The the normal pattern with public disorder is that it blows itself out uh, after a period, but um, I I think in this case there, there are other oh, subtexted at work here, including the outlawed UVF, who, who are agitating away in the background. Um, it's hard to see how it's going to go. Uh, I mean, there is great political discontent, there's great frustration, and the the situation's pretty uncertain.
0: All right, Chris Ryder, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, just before we go today, um, an important deadline that really is a subject that uh, gets people in the armed forces uh, very passionate coming up. Tell us about it. It's about education, isn't it?
4: The House of Commons Defence Committee, it's the all-party defence committee in the House of Commons, they're investigating the state of education of children in service families. They want to hear from families in services. They want to know what service people want answered in this inquiry 21st of, uh, of of this month they want people to write to them and say please ask the experts the following questions uh, 21st of this month
0: and we'd like to hear your views on this please tweet us at bfbs Sitrep and tell us what you think before next week's programs thanks for your get to our guests today including martin mccauley and of course christopher lee we'll be back same time next week bye-bye for now